easiest thing is just to say, well, what are you envious of? What, what's out there where you're like, that's awesome. And I kind of feel like I could do it. You just need a few of those. And then you pull a bit of that and a bit of that and you package it up in a slightly different way again. And then suddenly you have something that feels pretty sort of fresh and, and original. I think that's, that's a really sensible starting point. What gives you envy? Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast, the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, a community for people with side projects. Over the last year, I've been spending my time exploring how to help more people progress the ideas that they're interested in. I believe that everyone has a great idea and working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient and more confident. There are barriers that stop us from starting, sometimes time, money or network, but also self-belief, not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of nonprofits, businesses, creative projects and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. Today, I'm speaking to Dan Zell, co-founder of the London Sock Exchange. Now, it's worth noting it's the London Sock Exchange, not the London Stock Exchange, which was actually founded in 1571. This is the London Sock Exchange, founded in 2014 by Dan and his school friend Ollie, when they both had full-time jobs. They wanted to test out in the real world what it meant to start a direct-to-consumer business. They also thought there was a gap in the market for more high-quality socks. They started as a subscription business, and they've since been stocked in John Lewis, as well as shops in New York, and sell over 200,000 pairs a year, and have been featured in the Financial Times and The Guardian. Dan still runs it as a side project, alongside his job as managing partner at Decoded. We talk about why you might not want to take your side project full-time, the tricks of running an e-commerce store, how to start lean, and why side projects can help you learn and discover what you're good at. This episode is full of practical tips, especially for anyone with a product idea. I hope you enjoy. So you started in December 2014. Talk me through where the idea came from. We launched uh, almost exactly five years ago in time for Christmas 2014. I suppose the idea actually started rather than socks. It was uh, subscription businesses that um, I was really interested in. So uh, I'd been working... Um, I've been working in the advertising agencies of London and sort of similar story of someone in their kind of mid-twenties, overworked, underpaid, fizzing with uh, un- untidy uh, energy as to, you know, want to do something, but uh, without a real um, place to channel it. And this was about the time of um, Dollar Shave Club, Greys, that sort of first wave of... Um, subscription boxes and just a case of saying oh it's quite an interesting business model if you can kind of get people on board something and you just have this recurring revenue from them and then you just layer on more people um, that's something that you could kind of do alongside your day job uh, and then it was just a case of well what would I want to be delivered to me in a box on a regular basis there was a group of us who all worked in ad agencies and we'd kind of get together and, and talk about oh you know what could you subscribe to and we looked quite deeply into a condom subscription business actually but I think I'd have sort of struggled to sort of chat to my mum about that. Definitely struggled to get her to help me with it. But there was something about socks that was interesting in that 
there was a few things that we kind of saw to be true namely like guys in particular i think often pay quite a lot of attention as to the socks they're wearing especially if they work in a kind of more corporate environment it's one part of your kind of get up that you can have some fun with secondly you didn't really or kind of spoke to people and people didn't really go out and buy socks for themselves they would get it as a gift so you kind of resent having to go out and make effort and spend money on it um, but when you do have new socks, it's great. And then thirdly, you also had too many socks in your sock drawer, typically. So it's like, well, all these bloody socks, but I only like three three of them. Um, so we said, well, what, what, what if you could devise something that gave people new socks, but also took away their old ones? And you could sort of have fun with this slightly different business model, as you say. These things are always a bit messy. I wasn't, I didn't, you know, wake up on a mission to bring better socks to the people of the United Kingdom. Um, but it was like, oh, this is interesting. And that's kind of interesting. What if I could bring these together? You know, I'd, I'd left university and um, done a grad scheme. And you, you end up sort of being, what can feel like, I certainly felt like a little bit railroaded into a, a thing, into like a pigeonhole. You're like, well, and this is now my thing and, and that's what I do. I'd love to have the opportunity to find out what else I'm good at or what else I enjoy. And actually, this was a really amazing vehicle for that to say, well, you know, what if I want to be a designer? What if I want to be an accountant? Because when you are launching your own thing, you have to do everything. So talk me through the really early days, because I think sometimes, you know, going back, what is it, five years yeah. now. So five years ago, you know, that first thing where it starts to crystallize a little bit and you start to go, oh, OK, maybe maybe this is kind of a thing. Who did you first tell about it? I, I just sort of would. It was just a sort of pub chat, really, where you just sort of you, you just sort of share it. And so I'm thinking about doing this thing and I was sort of playing with different models. One was a subscription. One was a kind of Tom's based thing. Where it's like one for one. It just sort of kept coming. It like, wouldn't go away. It's actually how I would describe it. It wasn't, it, I didn't sort of persist with it. It sort of persisted. And people were like, no, that is a great idea. And then she was my ex-girlfriend. She came up with the name. And it just sort of suddenly, it, it did sort of crystallize. I was changing job from, from one ad, ad agency to another. And I had some time off. And I was like, well, this is a nice little thing to, um, to do over the summer while I'm, I'm sort of uh, changing jobs. So obviously I was working in the creative industry and you spend sort of all, all week surrounded by like sp speculative ideas did loads of stuff on a you know purely speculative basis of like oh i wonder what the logo would look like i wonder what the packaging would look like and that's a little bit more kind of that was a bit more kind of fantastical rather than okay practically what does this actually look like and then i was kind of shamed into it actually uh in the end because I, I would kind of i was talking about it a lot I, I really wanted to do it and that summer when i had some time off i, I looked a bit more deeply into actually how you know just a kind of prototype version of the first service but then i sort of sat on it a bit i think like anything you're a bit you know you can kind of do all this beautiful work the scary bit is then showing it to people and being like uh, am i going to get that validation from people are they gonna just think i'm really silly and i had this guy who was quite senior in i'll keep this vague uh he was quite senior in the agency that i moved to and he was a bit of a wally um very ad man kind of personality and, I, and uh, I was talking to him about it and he was like, I think it's a great idea. And I was like, yeah, it's a good idea, isn't it? He's like, yeah, I think you should do it. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do it. And he's like, if you don't do it, I'm going to do it. That's how good an idea I think it is. And I was like, really? He was like, yeah, I'll just get the production team on it and, and, and so get on with it. And it did kind of like shame me into, into just sort of making it happen. And at that point, it was just about thinking really practically. Okay, how do I just create the smaller, simplest version of this thing that if, as, and when it goes tits up, I'm not left like really red faced or like 10,000 pounds sort of out of pocket. Um, so then it was just a case of sort of saying, okay, how do I, 
how do I build how do I build a really shonky prototype version of this um, and and see if people actually respond to it. And did you get anyone who you told the idea to who went, aren't there already loads of sock companies or anything that kind of made you question the idea? I get, one of the things I like about working with socks is that it's very universal and, and very relatable. Like everyone has them. So everyone's kind of got a point of view on them. So you've got the like crew of people who are like, what's wrong with Marks and Spencers? Like a two for a five or whatever. You know, there's, there's, you're not fixing a problem there. And I was like, yeah, fine. And then there are, the pe- there are other people who are like, no, that's really interesting. But actually, if you thought about doing it this way, and uh, people are you know creative and enthusiastic so um certainly in the early days it was quite difficult to navigate that actually to be like not to be kind of swayed and be like oh actually maybe that's what it should look like but once i got into the actual building of that early prototype version of it the answer did just sort of present itself quite quickly i was like no this is what it should be and what it should feel like and how i want it to work it became much easier when i actually had a thing physically in front of me rather than it just sort of being kind of um, nebulous pub chat. And how did you take it from being nebulous pub chat to a fully fledged business? You know, there's a bunch of barriers, I think, that, that mean that a lot of ideas die in the pub. Uh, so what do you think made this one different to other ideas that you might have had? It was just a question of boiling it down to the, actually the transaction. So it's like, okay, I'm trying to get people to give me money for a thing. How how am I going to do that? And what are the building blocks? And, and just really focusing on that. So I was like, well, I need a store of a, a place where that can facilitate that transaction so i just built a website a really bad website on squarespace which you can still find on the internet still out there somewhere if you look really hard um and i did some photography at home um, of some socks that i bought on the high street so i said i don't need to find a factory i don't need to be designing socks i just need some socks that i think are quite nice from gap or from god knows where i was buying them um on Oxford Street in my lunch breaks. And then I got some sort of packaging done on moo.com that was sort of branded, I suppose. And some boxes from Amazon that were like 30p a box. And I had a stamp made for like a tenner with a logo on it. And like, that was it. Um, And then it was just a case of, okay, like I think I was like, can I get like 10 people to sign up to this in time for Christmas? Um, Was just my mini kind of experiment. Um, so yeah, early December, 2014, I put it on, uh, I just posted it on my Facebook page. That was it. Then I was like, are pe- am I going to be able to generate any interest in this, let alone, um, enough to p- potentially sustain a business. But again, it's not like it doesn't just go from like nothing to fully fledged business overnight. Uh, in a way, we're still not a fully fledged business. It's all, it's, you're always just layering on things. So you you started with a target of 10 customers. Um, how did you go about finding those first customers? Was that all Facebook friends? Yeah, I was. I, I, that, that was it. I was like, you know, I know enough people. I can get enough eyeballs on this. Um, if I can get 10 people to do this, and I can just spend a bit of time with them, kind of working this out, running it at cost, basically, or maybe even a small loss, um, then that would be a kind of obvious thing to do. As it was, um, I think within like three days, we got 60 people. And I was we were like I was really overwhelmed and quite panicked um, because people had given given their money, um, even though it was much cheaper then than it is now, um, for a thing that I didn't know how to deliver. And that definitely sharpened the mind. It's quite stressful, um, but suddenly I had like account. I was accountable to some customers, and that yeah, that's the thing that kind of that's when it became real. Actually, I, I remember it very vividly. I went to a, so that I put it on Facebook in the morning, on Thursday morning. And that night I went to a birthday party and like a lot of people had seen it 
I'd had a few messages being like, I love it, it's really cool. And then one of my mates, Tom, just came up to me and he goes, you know, the, the hard work is going to start now. And I'd been talking about this for like a year and a half. And I was a bit like, oh, my work's now done. And he's like, no, 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 this is like, this is when it really kicks off. Um, and he was very right. Um, and that first year was very, very hard because it sort of sold something to a group of people that I didn't really know that I could uh, execute on. So you've got 60 orders to fulfill. Are they all people you know at this stage? Yeah, friends or friends of friends, yeah. I guess I'd, I was just spending a lot of time sort of on ASOS, uh, <laughs> cruising for socks that I was like, okay, I could feasibly um, sell these and, and they wouldn't w w would be quite nice. Um, and just talking to like my sister from a legal perspective to make sure that I wasn't going to end up in jail. Still worry about that sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it was. The I mean, to be honest, it was the same as having to fulfill those ten orders. It was just six times the work. So, it was a case of like coming home from work. I was working really long hours at the time. Coming home from work like super late, and just spending a couple of hours like with a little production line of um, fold, like unpacking socks, repacking them, folding boxes, stamp branding boxes, um, getting my mum to help me. And then like getting getting up the next morning with as many as I could carry in an Ikea bag on the tube, um, went into my office with a bit of cash for the lads who worked in the post room um, and they would then post it for me. And then very shortly after Christmas, we got an, uh, the Evening Standard wrote an article about, about the business or we were featured in a, a small article in the Standard and then we got another wave of orders. And then that's when my business partner, Ollie, uh, came on board and sort of saved the day, to be honest my head was very much in the like customer experience side of what we were doing so thinking how do we create something that people really like and not really in the kind of operate operations of the business and he's he works in finance and he's he's got a very different sort of way of looking at problems and he he thank god came in and just said well this is how we simplify this is how we outsource this is how we automate uh we sort of never look back actually as a little a little team. So we're going to go back to this Evening Standard feature because I think for most people being featured in the Evening Standard, you know, a few months after you've really launched to the public is a dream come true. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, to be honest, at that time, we weren't really courting publicity because there was no way that we could satisfy any more demand. So someone at the Standard saw it on, on Facebook and got in touch, which was amazing. Um, and I think because it had such a silly name that it just was kind of catchy as an idea. But since then, we've definitely learned really heavily on 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 PR as a sort of marketing strategy. Early on, I, I just sat down with a friend of mine who's a journalist and I said, how, OK, how does this work? How do I get people to write about it? And she gave me some really good advice. She just said, don't overthink it. You've got a really simple product. It's very visual. You know, you're not telling the markets about a big kind of M&A deal here. You're just trying to sell some socks. So just find the people that are writing stories about the kind of thing that you'd like to be featured in and just send them an email like human to human. Be like, hey, um, Michael, I see that you've been writing stories about gifts for men. I've run this thing. Here's how it works. Here are some pictures. Like it could be interesting if you're planning any stories about this sort of thing. Keep it all in the body of the email and you know, see if people come back. And, and that's, it sounds really like underwhelmingly simple, but that that's still to this day our, our approach to PR and it, we still get loads of great uh, results out of that. No one's ever, no journalist has ever like complained about it. The worst is that they'll just ignore you. Um, but you also, you're just not, you know, you're not, you're not spamming them. You're saying, you're, you're just, you're writing them a genuine personal email. And now, you know, we'll probably try that with 
150 different journalists every every Christmas, and no one ever no one ever complains. What's your um, acceptance rate? How many rejections have you had? Loads. I mean, you just but you go into it. It, it is a bit of a numbers game. But every year we've had at least two or three really good pieces of of coverage. So this year probably our best bit was in we were number one gift in GQ, um, in British GQ. Uh, last year we were in a couple of features in the Sunday Times, which was great. But it's about just keeping it super super simple in terms of coming up with the copy and the positioning and the brand have you ever outsourced that kind of activity when my friend ollie who i run the business with came on board he he approached it really systematically he said what we need to do is look at the look at everything that we do in totality and the goal has got to be to try and professionalize it and make it run itself as opposed to me just doing everything and we still use that kind of lens to look at look at stuff so it was a case of just picking off to say well can we outsource that do we want to outsource that does it make sense to do it and in some instances yes in some instances no so things like product photography yeah absolutely we we found a really great product photographer that we've been working with for like four years a guy whose name is holiday which is amazing hi holiday if you're listening and he could just elevate our imagery to a level that we, we couldn't do ourselves um our accounting um <laughs> uh that that was painful at first when we didn't this the so the first website we built i built it on squarespace and we've built two since then and we've outsourced those two um to an extent so we still use a platform so we built another one on squarespace and now we, and then we built one on shopify um which are great um and you can do that stuff yourself but i had a certain finish in mind i suppose for the websites that needed some expertise so we found um in each instance we found agencies that could do it for us um relatively cost effectively um so we've outsourced that we outsource all of our fulfillment our picking and packing that's really important um so we have a warehouse now i'd never see a pair of socks if i can help it and we outsource the management of our production with our factory as well Things like copywriting, like both Ollie and I sort of enjoy writing and don't find that kind of thing too challenging. So we just do that ourselves. But yeah, it's always saying, okay, well, where where can we either steal something that exists already um, or outsource it to a professional where we need to versus just doing stuff ourselves. And So in terms of finding time, uh, so you said that you, you were working long hours at the time. It wasn't sort of a straight nine to five, uh, which is hard enough, I think, as it is. Yeah. What do you think drove you? Because I think, you know, you often ask someone who's busy, how do you make the time? And they just say, I just find the time. What do you think actually drove you? A few things, I suppose. I don't know. I wanted to do a good job. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna, if I'm going to do this, I want to do it well. It's something that I enjoy, like I enjoy the like nuts and bolts of it. I enjoy getting into the details of like designing a rubber stamp as it was. So I guess it feels a little bit like a hobby. There was the accountability factor. I think the fact that you're then you've got these people that you're accountable to um, sort of keeps you honest. It's quite, that's super motivating. It can make you feel really guilty and shameful at the same time. So you have to sort of balance that. I was also eyeing up what I wanted to do, wanted to do next professionally. And I saw the opportunity here to sort of have a really interesting project that I could, you know, talk about on my CV and job interviews as well, um, just with a view to sort of making me a kind of better, more employable person. So I guess a combination of those those things you know, there's a, a, a motivation to build a thing that you're kind of proud of. I think there's kind of two motivations that people have. They have the intrinsic motivations, which are, I just find this genuinely enjoyable, which is kind of the hobby thing. 
And then there are the extrinsic, which are, okay, I've got expectation or I'm going to make money from this. Because I think there's two schools of thought and I think actually it kind of ebbs and flows mm. where you sometimes, you know, I think when you're doing it for the wrong reason, it starts to become quite draining. Um, whereas when you're doing it for the right reason and you're quite clear on why you're doing it, it's actually, even if you're spending hours and hours and hours doing it, it's very uplifting. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really on the money. I suppose it was, yeah, it was a combination of like hobbyism and learning curve not it wasn't about making money it wasn't about anything like that that also made it acceptable for it to fail which i think was quite important um early on yeah and then i think once I, but once i got into it other you, you know you, you find other stuff that sort of drives you on so i still you know i've got a little app on my phone um that tells us every time we make a sale and like that's still like a like a nice feeling there were definitely times early on where i'm like what the hell am i doing this is crazy like working really hard and I'm coming home and I'm like staying up until like two in the morning pa packing socks uh, uh, yeah there are definitely moments where I was like this is this is a, a really bad idea but you kind of get over those I suppose how did you get through the bad moments I don't know I, I guess it's it's like anything the sort of pros need to outweigh the cons and I was like the the pros of like me packaging up these little socks that I've at that time curated and the packaging with the little styling notes that I've written and sending that to all these people and knowing that they're going to like it, that was the buzz. Yeah, I was like, this is something that I think is going to be cool when it lands on, you know, it comes through someone's letterbox. Even with that very early version of the product, they're going to be pleased with it. Uh, and then, you know, people would like drop me a text, be like, oh, my, my socks arrived today and actually they're really great. Thank you. Um, and that sort of was motivating enough to get over that initial year before we started being able to outsource stuff. So you're now doing all of this alongside being managing partner of Decoded, which is quite a feat to do the two things side by side how have you found time management and the challenges differ from having it as a kind of side project in a much more developed phase now to when it first started it's much easier because there's far fewer unknowns so uh i now know the business is incredibly seasonal and i can you know look at a, a year's calendar and i can tell you exactly the sort of hot spots as to when i'm going to be vaguely busy and I, kn I know that early summer we need to be shooting photography um, I know the sort of first quarter of the year we need to be looking at sampling new styles and so on and so forth. So you just go into it with your eyes open. So now it's pretty straightforward. You still get the odd curveball, and and that's that's when it gets a bit crunchy. So recently we were uh, we were approached by uh, a major film franchise to produce a uh, a range of socks in collaboration with this this film franchise, and we really wanted to do it. Um, and the, but the timing was abysmal. Um, Ollie had just had a baby and I was traveling with my kind of day job every week I was out of the country and I was trying to fit this in like in airports on the plane uh, like on the Eurostar and there's n not loads of tolerance um, for those sort of curveballs we try and make everything super predictable um, but it has got easier and do you think it's made you better at your job definitely I guess uh, it's a very simple business that we run in terms of the the kind of economics of it and the kind of supply and the demand and how everything fits together and i think it's given me a really good overview of how a business functions which can be a bit opaque actually if you're especially if you're working in like professional services which um, i guess a lot of people in london do to actually get to grips with the guts of a business um, can be quite difficult so it's been great kind of finishing school if i'm ever tackling a kind of business challenge in my day job i'll kind of try and relate it to okay well how would i make that work from a 
socks point of view and and then it suddenly becomes because it's a physical tangible product it becomes easier so definitely yeah in that respect and i think also just in terms of having the confidence that you're able to generate value like where there wasn't any before like i kind of know that that can be done and i've seen it and i get it and that's actually really transferable both as like from a confidence point of view but also from a sort of technique point of view do you think you would have got the job at decoded if you hadn't done the london sock exchange it definitely helped decoded is, is a technology education company so just the fact that i'd kind of on a zero budget had started a business um even if it wasn't a kind of startup in like silicon valley terms gave me a bit of credibility uh, over and above just the career that i'd had in in advertising why haven't you taken it full-time Number one, I don't think it actually would be a full-time job. I think we always set it up as a sort of semi-passive income idea. Could you build something that just sort of runs itself? So it kind of goes against that. I think it would also take the fun out of it a little bit. Um, and I don't know, it's just not, it's, it, isn't, it doesn't call for a sort of nine-to-five job. There have been times when I've, I've um, taken sort of chunks of time off to really focus on it, which has been good um, and, and fun, but... No, I think I'd get bored. People were like, "Oh, cool! So you're going to raise money and you're going to you're going to exit." And I'm like, "Yeah, probably not. Actually, I think I'm just going to sort of see how it goes." And I quite like doing it. We've we've definitely struggled sometimes to be honest about that though. Um, so a couple of years ago, we got approached by John Lewis, who wanted to take our our product, um, and we really ummed and We were like, "How are we going to position ourselves? Because we want to do this, and we want them to have confidence in us." but we also want to be like vaguely authentic and, and you know, not, not lie about it. Um, so, yeah, there was some quite delicate uh, positioning as to how we were set up and how many people we had on our team and all of that stuff. Were you not open with them that it was a side project because you were worried that they might think it was less serious? Yeah, I suppose, you know, they, they were looking at it from a risk point of view to say, you know, if we buy this if we buy these socks they just is this business just going to disappear or are these people going to run off with our money and go slip down to south america never to be seen again um so i suppose we wanted to give them reassurance but also be kind of honest with them and in the end we bo- both ollie and i met them and we said this is not our only thing that we do um, we take it really seriously which is true um we've got really high standards and we've got property quality assurance in place and this is who manufactures our socks and this is who manages our warehouse and this is who designs our packaging and um, that's all, you know, this network of professionals that we built. They don't work for us full time, but it's still, you know, it, it, this is, the, the business is not just me and one other guy. It's like this whole cast of characters that we, we pull in. So we were kind of open with them about that. And then we said, it, you know, if you want to be stocking different independent um, British brands, like this is kind of probably what that looks like. And if it doesn't work for you, then so be it. But uh, this is this is how it is. And they were good about it. And and we sort of again with those guys, we start we we started small and grew from there. Um, but it was definitely a, a a weird moment of the kind of corporate world colliding with our kind of hobby. Um, and that's where it gets a that's where it can jar a bit because like this film franchise they approached us and said you want to do this thing we said yeah and they're like great who are your lawyers and i was like well, we don't really have any lawyers because we don't need any lawyers and they're like so who's going to review your contract and i was like well i'll just probably do it myself and maybe get someone who i know who's a lawyer to gloss over it and it doesn't really matter so you can kind of butt up against these sort of issues where usually that film franchise or john lewis are going to be used to working with tommy hilfiger's 
like legal team um so that's where yeah we do a little bit of a kind of tap dance we say oh actually we're a bit different um and we're going to be really easy to deal with because our decision making process is like a click of the fingers you know in the same way that when i was in the pub talking about the idea and people would like come at you with ideas and be like what if you could do this this could be really cool you get exactly the same thing when you're working with like a john lewis or big film franchise they'll come to you with ideas and they'll be like could you just do a gift box or could you do ladies socks or could you do socks for babies and you're kind of like yeah we'll think about it um and i guess you just have to sort of try and stay true to like what is feasible and desirable and scalable knowing what you know um, rather than being kind of i guess cowed by john lewis and the buying power of like uh, a business like that um so there's been stuff that we've had to say no to um, along the way which has been quite um, felt good actually I'm a kind of big believer in saying no in terms of kind of making decisions should we do this should we not do this and filtering good ideas from distractions do you have a process for that for example do you have uh, a mission statement or a 10-year plan or you know any kind of structures around how you make those decisions it's a shame Ollie's not here because he would answer this quite differently uh, w when we first got together Ollie and I we, we did sit down and say okay how do we want to how do we want to be as a sort of team um how do we want to be as a as a business and we did we just came up with some principles uh, i guess some ways of behaving which were we want to do things simply properly and joyfully like it should just be really really super simple really fun and and not shonky like we should just do stuff properly and actually those are th three really good things that we come back to quite a lot otherwise uh, on a kind of week-to-week -week basis when we're making decisions i guess he and i have our sort of centers of gravity in the business so if it's a decision about the product ultimately like i'll take it if it's a decision about our like um supply chain let's say he'll he'll take it but we but definitely bounce stuff off one another um but i think we quite naturally have without ever having really formalized it areas of areas of interest i think that's why we're a, a good little team and do you have goals like do you do goal setting do you set yearly goals or quarterly goals or do you tend to go on the fly i suppose we're not super formal about it we did have once have an away day <laughs> where we uh we booked into a spa in surrey <laughs> for the night <laughs> with loads of post-it notes and shared a bed and watched match of the day now our, our kind of overarching goal is always to be like learning and trying new stuff and improving so some years that's like developing a wholesale side of the the business and working with john lewis or other retailers other years that's been actually okay can we sort out our packaging because it's not very good or it's not as good as it could be other years it's been a step change in the product so we, we never just want to kind of have that learning curve plateau we don't really have commercial goals other than can we just outperform where we were last year by something meaningful but we kind of know if we do everything else right that tends to happen and how do you structure your time now it's a bit more progressed do you meet on weekends or after work or do you tend to do stuff more remotely uh yeah we do we work very remotely so um I guess we both I travel a lot with with my job and and Ollie Ollie works in um in the city so he works long hours. We have a little WhatsApp group so we also we employ someone part-time to do our kind of customer service. Um so we have a little WhatsApp group and most stuff runs over that and then occasionally Ollie and I will have a call and then maybe once a quarter we'll get together for half a day, have some lunch and just sort of take a, a deeper dive into stuff. But generally nowadays uh, yeah, we're we're kind of in the thick of it, in the swing of it rather. Um, previously, we were a bit more formalised about it, and we'd have like a weekly call um, and a monthly get together. But we don't really need it anymore.
if someone wanted to set up a sock business, what advice would you give them? Choose a higher margin product um, <laughs> would be my advice. What advice would I give them? J- jokes aside, I think it's it is it is actually quite a difficult business to run because it it is a high volume product. It has to be. You can't charge unless you're making like incredibly luxury socks. You can't you can't charge that much, and you your minimum order quantities if you're producing socks are going to be really high. Um, we kind of learned that the hard way. Um, or what actually, you know, whatever you're trying to make, really understand how, how it's made before you can sort of commit to saying, I think there's a viable business here, rather than just focusing on the front end. If you were to give advice to someone looking to start a side project in general, what would you tell them? Do it about something that you'd feel comfortable talking about all the time, <laughs> uh, is the other thing. Like, Ollie and I were convinced for a while that there's mileage in starting a, like an oral care company selling kind of toothpastes and toothbrushes by subscription but we were both within an hour of just thinking about it we were both quite bored of that subject that was enough to tell us that actually while there may be a business in there it's probably not the thing for us so i think uh yeah you know make it something that that you're kind of happy to have a chat chat about at all times because people will ask you about it and you'll need to sell it so make it something that you're kind of you're comfortable and proud to to chat about think big and start small I think that's 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 part of the discipline, I suppose, to say you can kind of see something being really big, but then how do you reduce that down in the first instance? The simplest thing that you can actually get off the ground comfortably and if it goes wrong or less likely than it going wrong is if you need to change it, you can. You have the sort of scope to do that. And we have lots of examples of where we, we kind of change stuff along the way because we could because we hadn't over-invested. Now it would be much harder for us to change things like we're sitting on 20,000 boxes in our warehouse in, in Nottingham so we can't just decide to change our packaging but originally we bought like 30 boxes and if it was you know could throw them in the bin if we had to it wasn't the end of the world so um, I guess always be sort of thinking big and starting small I think I would have really struggled if I hadn't been honest about it with my employer uh, I've been very lucky in both both cases actually of, of the employers that I've had while I've been doing this they've both been really supportive of it but I was quite upfront and saying I'm doing this thing and it's it is out of hours but there's going to be instances where I'm going to need to do some stuff during the working day just being honest about it and saying look this isn't about me trying to find an exit out of my job because I really like it actually this should make me better at my job but um I just want you to know that and that so I would say when the time comes have that have that conversation with you know with your employer because um otherwise it can be really I imagine it would be really stressful. How did they respond to you saying that you're working on something? Well, in my first job, when it, the job when I started it, I think they were nervous about it actually um, because it was uh, an industry which we worked for really long hours. So like the concept of out of hours was quite novel because <laughs> often, you know, you, you spend your all of your waking hours in the office. Yeah, so they, it, they, I think they were kind of conflicted by it, but ultimately they were sort of into it. I think it became much easier when I began to explain my intentions that this wasn't me trying to like jump ship as it were um this was just something that I wanted to do alongside having a job and then yeah with 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 decoded when I when I I came came to work there it was a big kind of I think plus point on my CV so obviously they were super into it incredibly supportive of it which is um which is which is great it's about explaining your intentions I guess just see it from their point of view like what are they worried about they wouldn't care if you were like, do you know what I'm going to take up? Uh, I'm going to take up the harp um, as a hobby. You'd be like, cool. Y- yeah, as an employee, you wouldn't care. It's it's more if you're like, 
if it's something that would interfere with your commitment or your ability to like do a great job. So I think it's just about recognizing that and respecting that and highlighting the positive, as you say, that it will bring to the employer um, and to the business. So like now I decoded, like I did it yesterday, actually every year I come and I run a pop-up sock shop, like one lunchtime in the run up to Christmas. And it's like a something that I kind of try and bring people in on rather than it be this sort of weird thing that doesn't get talked about because then people, I think, are naturally quite suspicious. Whereas if you're really open about it, I, I think that's never going to happen. Unless your intention is for this to become a thing that you are going to professionalize and do full-time, in which case, I don't know, it's a bit less cut and dried. But that's never, for me, that's never been the case. So, Do you think it has made you more productive in your day job? Yeah. One of the things that, that running the business did in the first instance was, it sounds weird, but it kind of reduced my expectations for my job, where... I would find myself being frustrated and like, oh, there's so much more that I can do. And like, you want to express yourself and do stuff. And actually, I had, I suddenly had that outlet and it just meant that I, my job was my job and I could just do that and do a really good job. And it didn't have to bring me everything. And it wasn't this like totalitarian thing. It was like my job. And then alongside that, there was other stuff. And I was, I could be defined by more than just my job. These days, that's less the case. But certainly when I started it, that was, um, that was really top of top of my mind, actually. You mentioned uh, you know people who want to start something but don't know where to start. People who often need it most struggle the most with finding it because they put so much expectation on what a job means, and and I think that can be really disabling. And that's why I think it can be so amazing when you start something because you just start really small and you realize that actually no one really cares and it's actually really liberating. But I do think it's hard to make that first step. How would you suggest they? get started yeah i suppose um I, I was having this chat with um someone the other day they've just they've been doing a master's alongside their job and that's coming to an end so they're like well what could i do next and i said well what what, what could it be and they're like i don't know uh, i guess the easiest thing is just to say well what are you envious of what what's out there where you're like that's awesome and i kind of feel like i could do it you just need a few of those and then you pull a bit of that and a bit of that and you package it up in a slightly different way again and then suddenly you have something that feels pretty sort of fresh and, and original. So I think that's that's a really sensible starting point, like what what gives you envy? And I think, you know, we're so lucky to live in a time where you don't need many specialist skills to like bring bring something to market, as it were. You You have such easy access to customers, users, advocates, suppliers, wh- whatever, journalists that, you know, with a bit of kind of gumption and and guile and and google you're like you're kind of halfway there i think you're right or almost like i think the other thing that can sometimes drive people is a kind of feeling of being underestimated i think one of the reasons lots of people in advertising have side projects is because they are creative people going into quite a commercial setting with quite a lot of hoops to jump through and there's loads of amazing stuff about that but the thing that you're missing is this like sense of creatively driving something and that's why you enter the industry in the first place yeah that's a whole different podcast about the sort of paradox of, of of the kind of advertising and creative industries that to be creative on an industrial scale you actually have to be very systematic and process driven which is not why people go into it i think that kind of goes back to what i was saying earlier where you uh yeah you, you you're you're looking for as you say a, an opportunity to express yourself or find an outlet for your ideas in, a, in an environment where they could flourish and that's that's quite fun and i think like i say we live in a time when we when you can just just do that with a few hours and um and, and a laptop i think that's really interesting i've not sort of heard or thought about it in that way and i think actually that idea of if something is good you should do it 
all the time or you should grow it. I think that's the kind of culture we live in. So that's why there's this expectation of raise money or go full time. And I think it is, yeah, it's a challenge to fight that urge actually whether it's your your own urge which is oh I should grow this or I actually do want to grow this or external urges there's a kind of purity in just keeping it as a side project or keeping it as something you just enjoy doing yeah I think that's exactly spot on actually I was in I was in the states recently with work and uh I was I was running a workshop um for some uh some uh, like uh, executives from a big supermarket in uh, North Carolina, um, yeah. Uh, and I was, t- I was talking about um, like the the trials and tribulations of e-commerce. And um, this guy came up to me afterwards, and he was like, "You know, I've been working like thick Southern accent. He's like, I've been working in uh, in in retail for like thirty years, and and like I, you know, I love your brand, and you've got great product. Have you thought about taking it to the states?" And I was just like, "Kinda." He was like, "You know, because this," and I was like, "Oh yeah, I know, but like." have to like get a distribution center and i'd have to like set up as a different and suddenly i was just like that sounds like so much admin um for something that wouldn't just be that fun and would be quite hard to manage and and yeah probably could but that's not really why i'm I'm doing it and and he was a bit funny about that actually and he was like oh well like what, what kind of businessman are you and i was like well it's yeah good question different like it's not it's as you say there's not not that like by default setting of like want to grow this as big as possible and then exit and then go and live in the south of france i suppose it's a different approach to to the idea of work that 20 years ago work was nine to five five days a week that was it and 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 now it's you know well maybe i work you know three days a week and or i work remotely for half time and actually i do this other thing and my time is not you know, structured as as it was defined by like Henry Ford or whatever, um, on a production line. But you know, on a just a personality basis, I am someone who thrives on on being busy, um, and I get a kick out of just like turning stuff around. So, this is all part of that. I sort of do thrive on having a few more things on my to do list that I don't individually resent. There are times when it becomes a bit a bit much, but it's all ultimately manageable because it is only it is only socks at the end of the day. I think that's a good point to end on. Thank you so much, Dan, for speaking to me and joining the Out of Hours podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the Out of Hours podcast. To hear more about Out of Hours, sign up to our newsletter at outofhours.org. And if you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving a review. It really helps. 